Good morning. A lot of you guys, I don't think, know who I am. Um, I'm, a, I'm a friend of Pastor Tim and Joel's, um, and I'm the youth pastor over at Springfield Faith Center. And uh, Tim just asked me to come and, and uh, share a word with you guys. Um, it's really special for me to have the opportunity to speak here. Uh, I, my wife and I attended Fifth Avenue almost four years ago. And uh, I'm just going to move this out of the way because I like to look at people. And uh, when we came to Fifth Avenue, Bill Daniels, everybody say hi, Bill. Uh, Bill Daniels invited Kelsey and I to come check out Fifth Avenue. And, and where I was at in, in life when, when that happened is I was in a spot where I was very uh, uninterested in church. I was very hurt. Um, I didn't, didn't want to go to church, and Bill had been pestering me for a little while to come check this church out. He said, it's the, the pain that you've experienced in the past is not going to happen here, trust me. And, and we came, and the first Sunday, I don't even remember what you talked about, probably garbage, but the first Sunday that, that we were here... <laughs> Uh, Tim, Tim preached this message, and I mean, you can ask my wife, we were sitting right over where Bill and Marie are sitting at right now, and, uh, and I was just, I was weeping, and it was, it was exactly what, what I needed to hear, and the Lord like started this, this process in me of, of getting me back into relationship with church and closer relationship with him, and even back into ministry, and all that started right here, and so this is a very special, special church for me, and uh, I'm just really happy to be here. Um, Another quick thing is, is I have, uh, uh, I went to the doctor yesterday, and my doctor told me I have an infected uvula, and after she explained to me that guys also have uvulas, um, she, I then, like, I then, <laughs> like, she, she told me that, <laughs> she told me that, that it's going to feel like because it's so swollen that you're, like, you're about to gag, but you're not actually gagging. So like, if I just like stop and take a couple breaths or get a drink of water, it's only because I don't want you to see anything disgusting up here. I'm doing it for you. Um, I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, thank you so much um, for this opportunity to, to speak and to be here at, the, at, a, at what is, is, is really a church home for me. Um, I, I consider, it sounds silly to say, but I consider uh, this church holy ground for me, and it's a milestone for me in my relationship with you. Um, and so God, just thank you for the opportunity to, to get to be here and, and just, just speak what you've put on my heart. And uh, in your name, amen. So um, when Kelsey and I were first about to get married, um, we, we sat down with my grandma, and my grandma gave Kelsey uh, uh, her, her engagement stone. She gave me the engagement stone to be able to put in Kelsey's ring, and it's what my grandma had when my grandpa proposed to her. And then my grandma also said, like, I want to give you your grandpa's wedding ring um, because, because I, I just I want them to stay together. And when my grandpa died, I was two years old when my grandpa died. I have no memories of him whatsoever. So my grandma had his wedding ring, and she had it sized down so she could wear it on her middle finger, and she said, I want to give you grandpa's wedding ring because I want the stone and the ring to stay together. And that was such a big deal for me. Like, that was, um, like, when she gave it to me, I cried. Like, it, it, was, it was a very, very powerful moment for me. And Kelsey and I, like a lot of people when they first get married, didn't have any money whatsoever to speak of. And so we couldn't afford to get the ring resized right away. But I said, okay, Grandma, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the ring resized eventually. And I was living with my friends, Dennis and Jordan, at the time. And I remember, like, I took the ring box and I set it on top of our fridge because, like, I don't know, I was, I was 21 and stupid. Like, so I set it on top of our fridge. And, 
And I remember just like, okay, mental note, it's going to be there. Well, then like the, the hustle and bustle of wedding stuff came up and we got married and I got like a, a cheaper ring to, to, to wear in the meantime. And Kelsey and I got all moved in and settled in together. And then I realized, I was like, oh gosh, my grandpa's wedding ring is, is, is still on top of that fridge. And so by this point, um, my friend Jordan had had a couple different people move in with him. And uh, so I went into the house and I went to the fridge and I felt around on top of the fridge and the wedding ring was gone. And I remember going around and asking my friends and asking them, like, hey, have you, have you seen this? Or asking Jordan's roommates, have you seen the wedding ring at all? Like, it's really important to me. And Jordan or none of his roommates knew what had happened with it. And so I just figured, dang, like, probably somebody came over and hung out and saw, like, a gold ring and took it. And um, that, that moment felt like, like, there's just this, like, I don't know, it sounds melodramatic, but when, when I... When I saw that happen, it was like this little piece of my grandpa that I didn't really have was like taken away from me. Like it was like the last thing I had left that was an attachment that I had to my grandfather. Um, and I, and it, it made me think like um, part of my like heritage is very important to me. Knowing where I come from, feeling connected to, to, to the people who went before me is a big piece for me. And I'd always heard stories of my grandpa and how much he, he loved me and cared for me and how I was his favorite grandson. And so when I lost that ring, I don't know, it sounds dumb, but like it, it made me emotional. Um, there's a story in the Bible uh, where the nation of Israel also loses something that's, that's very, very important to them. And, and I'm talking about, and, and this thing arguably more important than, than their grandpa's wedding ring was the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I'm, I'm calling this message, When Glory Leaves Us. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 12 through 22. And, uh, and this, is, uh, this is what it says. So I'll just a little, set up a little context before we get here, sorry. Um, there was this war between Israel and the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines whooped Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant was just hanging out right there, and the Philistines went in there, and they took the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant, and they ran off. And so what we're reading here is right after the Philistines have stolen the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. That same day, a Benjamite ran from, battle, from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and the dust on his head. When he arrived, he, there was Eli at his chair by the side of the road, watching because he, his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes had failed so he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What, what happened, my son? And the man who brought the news uh, replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. Take that last part personally. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the capture of the ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 
Now, just, just, just a quick reminder, the Ark of the Covenant for Israel, like, that was the symbol of God's presence. Like, that was, wherever the Ark was, the belief was that the favor and the glory and the love and, the, and, and all the encompassing power of God, like, was demonstrated with inside the Ark of the Covenant. And Israel believed, like, wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where victory was, and that's where the goodness was, and that's where abundance was. So when the Ark of the Covenant is taken from Israel, it's as if you're taking the very heart of the nation and removing it. And now, like, this nation is just no longer, like, a living, breathing nation and all of a sudden it becomes this corpse of a nation with the heart totally disappearing and so when you take the ark away from Israel their belief at the time was the glory and the presence of God has left us it's not there anymore the glory and the presence is totally gone and the truth is is many of us we can relate it sounds silly because we don't really uh, anymore we don't really connect God to, to sacred objects or specific things we we have a more a belief of, of a more omniscient view of God which is that he's just all around all the time <clears throat> but we also we can understand what it is to feel like the wars we're facing in our life have a way of stripping the glory of God away from us I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling of the circumstances that I'm standing before. It feels as though the glory and the presence of God has been taken away from me because of this battle that I'm facing. When I was a kid, Christianity was presented to me as like this game of of bigger, better. How many of you guys have ever played the game bigger, better? Anybody who's done youth ministry at any point in time has probably done Bigger Better. It's, it's a blast. And what Bigger Better is, is you, I did it when I was in youth group my senior year of high school, and, and we met with a bunch of other youth groups, and they split us off into different teams, and every team got a penny, and their job was to go from house to house and, and see if you can trade that penny for something bigger and better. And so we take our penny, and we went to one house, and we're like, hey, we're a youth group, we're playing a game, is there anything that you can give to us for this penny? And so one guy was like, okay, I got like a, I'll take your penny, and I'm going to give you like the, the secret, that, that Oprah Winfrey book, which is not worth a penny. But like she gave us the, he gave us the book. And so like we, we took the book, and then we went to the next house, and we got a rug, and we went on and on and on. And eventually, like we went to a friend of mine's house, and his cousin, uh, my friend's cousin, was living at this house, and he said, you know what, you guys can like take my truck and just like drive it there and just bring it back at the end of the night. I guarantee you, you're going to win. So we're like, awesome. So we, we got in the truck, our youth leader drove, it smelled like cigarettes and bog water, and we got in the truck, and as we, we drove back, and we won like the game of Bigger Better, because nobody else had a truck that night. And I was told that like Christianity was like bigger, better. You take this little thing that you have and you give it to God and God exchanges it for this, this bigger, better thing. And in a lot of ways, that's totally true. I absolutely buy into that idea. But I don't think it totally captures the brutal realities that we will still face even after coming to Jesus. And it sounds cliche to say that it's still going to be hard after coming to Jesus, but I don't think like... Christianity is super well known for getting into the nitty-gritty, how bad can things actually get even after you come to Jesus. When I was 23, I was, I was diagnosed with, uh, with depression. Um, I was sad all the time. I was having breakdowns. I was having panic attacks, suicidal thoughts. I'd been a Christian for a long time. And I, I, when I became a Christian, I was told that, that this depression stuff was, was, was this demonic thing that was attacking me, and I just needed to pray hard enough, and I just needed to, to get, grow close enough to God, and the depression wouldn't, wouldn't attack me anymore. 
And when I was 23, and life took a really, really big left turn, like the depression was no longer manageable. I remember there being times where I would be driving home from work, and I'd have to pull over to the side of the road, and I would just like be hyperventilating, hyperventilating in my car on the side of the road, just sobbing. No reason. Just, just sad, just depressed, just anxious. And so I got on a medication and uh, went through a few years on and off medication, got back on a medication a little over a year ago, and the medication was working really, really good. It was an antidepressant. I was able to, I had a few months of being on that medication where I was able to really focus and I was able really to just like dig in and feel like connected with people and connected with God and like be able to do my job and show up when I say I was going to show up. But the, this medication came at, at one, like there was one price tag that was attached to it and that was that it would give me migraines. And not just, like, migraines, like, once a month, like, two or three times a week, migraines, vomiting in the toilet, having to lie down on my couch, lights off, like, just totally take me out migraines. And so I went to my doctor, and I talked to her about this, and she said, well, you know, like, there are other antidepressants out there that don't give you migraines, and we can try other things. And I was like, okay, great. And so she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prescribe you for this different one, and uh, just stop taking this medication, and tomorrow start taking this new one. Now... If you know anything about mood, yeah, I already see people being like, what the heck? No. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I was, <laughs> I don't know anything about, like, medications or anything like that. And, and so, like, I just stopped one day. And, and antidepressants, the way they work is they take weeks, sometimes months to get into your system. And they take weeks, sometimes months to get out of your system. And there needs to be some sort of transition period before you bounce from one directly to the other. And I didn't know any of that. And apparently my doctor didn't know that either either. And so I start taking this medication the next day. And I have three or four days, like, feel it on top of the world. Like, I'm just like, I am invincible. I could do anything. Like, I was just like, hyper productivity, just like, I'm a stallion. Let's do this. Like, that was like, I, it was like peak Tony. And then three or four days into it, it was actually, it was on Mother's Day, this last Mother's Day, I had by far the worst breakdown I've ever had in my entire life. It, it, it was just as if this car was driving and it drove full speed right into the side of the wall. And I was, I don't even remember. Uh, it was a week-long breakdown, and I don't remember a lot of it. Um, my wife was there, freaking out. Uh, my buddy Jeremy's here. He was there for me almost every step of the way. I had just a few people who were just like, oh my God, is like Tony going to make it through this? Because I was, the, boy, the way I can describe it, is it was like, uh, how many of you guys have seen Spider-Man? It was, you know how like Spidey senses, like right as something's about to hit him, his Spidey senses go off and he knows to dodge it? It was like that all the time. It was like all the time I was just hyper aware that I was this close of like getting shot or getting hit by a car or it was just like a dinosaur chasing me all the time and I don't know why. And it just, it would not stop and it was this week-long by far, I have been, I, you know, worse than when my mom died, worse than when I've been fired, like, the worst week of my life. All because, like, there was just this slight medication change without the proper, like, instructions given to it. And it was miserable. And there's this movie called, it's kind of a funny story, and, and it's about people dealing with, with mental illness. And one of the characters in that movie says, I didn't want to wake up. I was having a much better time of sleep. And that's really sad. It was almost like a reverse nightmare. Like when you wake up from having a nightmare, you're so relieved. I woke up into a nightmare. And for a week, that's, that's how it felt. 
And it was every day, it was me talking myself off the ledge. Every day it was me convincing myself like to hang in there, to not give up, that you weren't going to feel this way forever. It was me sending out text after text after text to people I trusted to just pray for me and meet up. It was saying, hey, we need to meet up right now because if we don't, I don't trust myself what I'm going to do. I mean, it was bad. It was a very, very scary situation. And, And mental breakdowns, they have a fairly aggressive stigma attached to them. And I think when, when you're a pastor and when you come from a background that tells you mental breakdowns are a product of, of you having a bad relationship with God or of you exposing yourself to some sort of demonic forces or, you know, when you have that, it presents its own set of issues. C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Pain, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also hard to bear, more hard to bear. Frequent attempt, the frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. And I suddenly found myself in a context where I can see, like, that homeless guy walking along the street, mumbling nonsense to himself, and be like, I get it. I feel like I'm not too far away from being that guy right there. Uh, five or six years ago, there was, there was this organization called Invisible Children. And how many of you guys remember the, the, there were posters all over it said Coney 2012? And, and the, yeah, and it was like this movement to get Coney's child army and to get Coney out of power in Africa. And there was this guy who was heading it up, and he, I mean, it was one of the biggest nonprofits at the time, but he was doing it all by himself. And five or six years ago, TMZ released this footage of him running around his neighborhood buck naked, just screaming. And he had had, like, a total mental breakdown. And I remember, like, seeing that at the time and thinking, like, that guy's crazy. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I totally get it. I feel like I'm just a few clicks away from being that guy right there. There are people here who, who know a, a deeper pain than, than what I've been through. There are people here who, who absolutely understand that feeling of the glory has left me. The glory of God is gone. And whether it's your battles with mental illness, or it's your marriage, or it's your family, or it's your friends, or it's your job, it's just about everybody in this room who can understand when, when that, the wife of Phineas says, like, I'm naming my child Ichabod because the glory of God has left. And I think for a lot of us, we relate to that feeling more of like being the people of Ichabod than we feel, have the feeling of being the people of Israel. We relate more to that feeling of like this lament, this pain, this heaviness, this feeling, the absence of God, than we do like feeling that fullness of God where you're close enough to wrestle him. But as many of us know, the ark didn't stay gone. The symbol of God's presence, it returned to Israel. And just like the nation of Israel, I believe the people here who feel like they're more a people of Ichabod, I believe your days of feeling that way are numbered. Life may break your heart and it may crush you and it may take everything that you have hoped for. But as we've heard so many times before, in that context, there is still love to be found and there's still beauty to observe. And at times, it's going to feel like enough. And though there were times where I felt like I was doomed to be another suicidal statistic, I was doomed to feel like I'm just going to feel like I'm hanging on forever, not thrive because I was too much to hope for, not grow because I was too much to ask for, but just hang on. There was times where I felt like that's all I will ever get to do in my life. And the deepest dark, it didn't take the pain away, but it gave me this ability to observe this firm and steady love 
and this firm and steady beauty. And it's not, this is not me saying it was worth it. I would have preferred to have gone through life without a mental breakdown. I'm not saying, like, like I've heard people get up there and be like, you know what, like, it sucked that my wife died, but life's better than ever. Like, that's not what I'm saying, like, at all. Like, I'm saying that, like, if I could write the story of my life, even at this side of the breakdown, I would have written it without the breakdown. And I'm still, like, there are relationships that I have permanently damaged because of that, because of my behavior during that time. So, not worth it. Wish it didn't happen. But in that... I was able to observe like this firm beauty and this firm love. I believe that here there are people who, who, who can, can look at me and say, like, hey, that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. Or, or that's there's people that I love that are feeling that like I'm a I'm a person of Ichabod, I'm not a person of Israel. And I have three things uh, that I want to say to you. And if 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 uh, this is you, then take it in. Or if you know somebody who's in this situation, and maybe write it down and think about saying think about saying this to them. The first thing is is have the courage to sit in and confront your pain, and you will discover a weightier and more beautiful love than you ever knew existed. If you have the courage to sit in and confront your pain, don't medicate it. I mean, I understand the, the temptation to medicate it. Like, and when I say don't medicate it, I don't mean don't get help. <laughs> like, I mean, don't just like, try to ignore it. The second thing is, you are a holy people. Your determination to stay alive, to keep showing up for your spouse, your friends, your children, your work, your stubborn resolution to hang in there, It will give you the ability to truly see the pain of those around you, and it will also give you the ability to truly point them to that deeper beauty and that deeper love. And then this last thing, and I think this is the most important thing, is that the presence never really left you. If you read like on in the story of Samuel, you take two chapters where it's like the adventures of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's, you see the Ark is being passed from army to army and tribe to tribe because all these people think like we have like the presence of, the, of Yahweh and he's going to be on our side because we have him. And we see the Ark like, that, I love this one story, like the Ark is in the temple next to one of the, the Philistine gods and, and the, the, the priest hears the stud and he goes in there and he sees like the idol, the Philistine god bowing before the Ark and he like picks it up and he puts it back in and he leaves and then he hears the thud again and then he goes in there and he sees the head cut off the Philistine God and it's bowing before the Ark again. Like there's just like these adventures of the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark knows like that the presence of God belongs to God's people. And so there are going to be times where it absolutely feels like the presence of God has left and the glory has left, but the presence of God has never really left. A few months ago, I was, I was cleaning out my garage with some friends, and uh, this, this, this person who was helping me, he, he pulls out a box and, and out flies this, this broken, not broken, but this stained, gross, dirty little jewelry box. And he picks it up and he hands it to me and he says, says what, what's this? And, and I open it and it's my grandpa's ring. The ring never left. It was with me the entire time. It felt like it had been gone. It felt like I had lost this piece of my grandpa. And just like the ring and just like the ark, for those of you who are facing the darkest of dark, the presence of God has never really left you. I'm going to pray. God, thank you so much that, that when it really does feel like we've absolutely hit rock bottom, that when it feels like you have abandoned us and we have no verifiable proof that you're there or that you were ever really there, I thank you that, that we can see 
true beauty, and I thank you that we can see true love, and I thank you that that beauty and that love has a divine source. And I believe that's you. And so God, for people in here, I'm asking that, that for those who, who feel like they're the people of Ichabod, not the people of Israel, God, I ask that, that you would give them the strength to hang on a little longer. That you would put people in their lives to just surround them and show them love. That they would see you with, with hands and feet and skin on and the, the faces of the loved ones around them. And God, that they would have the steady reminder that you have not left them and that there's more story to be written. And I love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Have a great weekend, everybody. Don't forget to go to the Slice of Life event tonight. Thank <laughs> you.